Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi there. This is Seth Abramovich, senior writer at The Hollywood Reporter. Thanks for coming back for another episode of It Happened in Hollywood. This week, we're going to be doing a film that was almost inspired by E.T., but not quite. I'll explain that and more on this week's It Happened in Hollywood. So this season, we've had some incredible guests, and the next one, I am so excited that he's part of It Happened in Hollywood Season 3. His name is John Sayles, and uh, if you don't know the name, you definitely know his films. He's been making films forever, and uh, some of his most famous ones are The Secrets of Rowan Inish, Sunshine State, Passion Fish, and probably most famously Lone Star, the 1997 film with Matthew McConaughey that earned uh, John a Best Original Screenplay nomination. Now, like so many greats, including Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola, uh, John Sayles got started in the Roger Corman factory and quickly proved to be quite a talented screenwriter. And he wrote uh, Piranha, actually, which was sort of a a ripoff of Jaws, but uh, it so impressed Steven Spielberg that he hired him to write a treatment for a sci-fi film that he had in mind. That film would eventually become E.T., But John left that project early on. Uh, Then he won a MacArthur Genius Fellowship and took that money and put it into an indie sci-fi script that he had written called The Brother from Another Planet. Uh, He put Jewel Morton in the lead role as the alien, who uh, pretty much looks like a human being, except he has three toes on either foot. And uh, he lands in Harlem, and it's the ultimate fish-out-of-water story. When I saw the film, you know, as a kid, it really made a big impression on me. I I was sort of amazed at, uh, even though it was super low budget and you knew that the effects were, you know, just being made on the fly, it, it somehow still worked emotionally. And I made me realize, you know, how great a good script and a good director, uh, how far that can really take a project. So uh, I reached out to John, and to my delight, he said he would be into going through the paces of the brother from another planet. So without further ado, here we go. John Sales, it's a thrill to meet you. You're a legend in the film business, so it's great to, uh, to have you here. It's good to be here. It's good to be a legend in somebody's mind. <laughs> More than just mine. I'm thrilled that we're doing The Brother from Another Planet, which is a movie that uh, I saw as an early teen and made a huge impression on me. Uh, but before we get into it, I'd like to talk a bit about um, your your sort of uh, unique niche and how you how you found your place in filmmaking. Uh, I know you started in uh, sort of the Roger Corman school, like a lot mm-hmm. of uh, great directors. And if you could just give a brief rundown of how, how you broke in. Yeah, I kind of wrote my my way in. I was I was writing uh, fiction and, and started to get some of that published in magazines and uh, got a novel published. And uh, Francis Dole, who was Roger's right-hand person, who was like half the company at New World, 
um, and did pretty much everything that Roger didn't to get movies made. Um, I think she handed on a short story of mine that was an Atlantic monthly magazine um, to Roger. He read it and said, like, well, we should hire this guy. <laughs> and it was right as I came out to uh, L.A. to try to start working for the movies. And um, they hired me to do a rewrite of the movie Piranha, which was basically, uh, I think, as Steven Spielberg said, it was a Jaws spinoff, but it was the best Jaws spinoff. <laughs> and uh, that's when I, I met and started to work with Joe Dante, who I did uh, several projects with. And so I, I wrote three movies for Roger and then... Um, I kind of wrote two movies for graduates of Roger, Louis Teague and, and Joe Dante, uh, when when Louis did Alligator and Joe did The Howling. And with that money, um, I made Return of the Sakaka 7 with the $40,000. Because, you know, these guys were signatories to the Writers Guild, but it was, you know, you only made $10,000 scale back then. Uh, and, uh, and then that got into a couple festivals and eventually got a theatrical release. And so I was kind of on the board as a director as well as a writer. Um, there, you know, there, there, there's been a long history of writers eventually getting to direct. John Houston is one. Um, uh, what's his name? Who wrote um, uh, Jurassic Park? And uh, you know, the, the the books for those eventually got to direct. Um, it's rarer that novelists like me also direct. There's only a handful. Um, and you know, I, I think Ilya Kazan, when he stopped being able to get movies made, started writing novels. And there's really, you, you can name them on one hand, novelists who also direct. But quite a few screenwriters have made that leap. And by using my own money to make Sakaka 7, I kind of moved that up several years, I think. Yeah, well, uh, very few screenwriters went on to become directors, so uh, amazing that you were able to accomplish that so early on. And, you know, you mentioned Spielberg liking Piranha, and uh, in researching Brother, I did not realize quite how non-coincidental the similarities between it and ETR. So uh, if, you, if you wouldn't mind telling us the story of uh, Night Skies. Yeah, I, I had been hired by uh, Stevens Company to to write a movie called Night Skies, which was kind of based on uh, an incident that he ran into when he was um, doing his research for uh, Close Encounters, and uh, it, it involved the the Men in Black show up at some point in it, and uh, I had heard of them because I had read some UFOlogy um, before. And um, it it was kind of like I always likened it to drums along the Mohawk with ETs attacking a little farmhouse instead of Indians. And uh, Ron Cobb, who was uh, quite a good cartoonist and uh, you know production designer, art guy, um, he was he was slated to direct it. Uh, while we were working on it, he was. Um, one of the people uh, doing production design for Conan. So the, the one big meeting that I remembered happened in Paris and Spielberg had come from a scout for um, the Indiana Jones movie and Ron had come from Spain where they were shooting Conan and I came from Hoboken and we all <laughs> met in Paris for one night and I did another draft, I believe. And then um, I think what happened was Columbia decided they had Starman, the Jeff Bridges movie. And I think, you know, it was after 1941, which was Spielberg's first movie that didn't make a mint. Mm -hmm. And they just said, eh, well, another science fiction thing, we're not interested. So he moved on. And when he moved on, I started working on another movie. And um, pretty much the very last page of Night Skies is the very half of the very first page of of um et and you know i i just kind of knew they had gone on with a, a somewhat different story and then uh because for arbitration the writers guild if you were on the chain of writers in a project they sent it uh melissa matheson's script to me and quite honestly as as a writer for hire 
usually the scripts that you read aren't very good because you're being asked to rewrite them. Um, and I just read this and I said, well, this is a great script. <laughs> and it really doesn't have much to do with what I wrote, so I didn't ask for any credit. And I, in my wisdom, thought, oh, this will be a nice little Disney movie. You know, <laughs> I had no idea it would go platinum, but um, but I thought it was really good, you know, just even on the page. And there are a lot of good movies that aren't that impressive on the page, and, you know, the whole thing comes together to make a great movie. And that was the one where I really thought, well, this is a really good script, and this is different than other science fiction stuff that I've seen. But the sort of menacing invasion tone uh, ended up producing, I think, Poltergeist. Did, did he, did... You know, I think there's echoes of it in in, in other things. Um, you know, Joe uh, later on made Gremlins, which is kind of the the broad humor version of something like that. But you know, I, I run into this all the time as a screenwriter. There's a lot of ideas that are somewhat similar floating out there right and so i never really feel like i've been pickpocketed very badly and you know every everybody always asks me with return of the sakaka seven um about um the big chill and i always just feel like well it's called the big chill for a reason it's about a bunch of people who are realizing that they've lost their ideals or maybe never had them in the first place and the return of the sakaka seven is about people going in the exact opposite direction so it is about a bunch of college friends meeting for a weekend, but they go in such different directions. It's like, you know, complaining about a, a Western because there's a horse in it. <laughs> uh, okay, so it's still fascinating to me uh, to know that your your colonel of, became E.T. And then, so after that, you read the script and it goes on to its thing. Did that plant something in your mind that became The Brother or? No, no the, the, the Brother is actually the only movie I, I ever made that is based on dreams. Um, I was, I forget which movie, it might have been Leanna that I was doing the, um, the sound mix for. And you have, you know, sound mix in, in, in those early days. Uh, it really invaded your mind because they... When we did Leanna, they didn't have high-speed backup. So you heard the soundtrack forward, and then at the same speed. And you do that all day, and you're going to have some very strange dreams. <laughs> and you're under pressure because it was a very low-budget movie. And, you know, every day in a mix studio, we had like a five-day mix or something, and we had to get it done. Um, I had a dream where I was writing a movie for Joe Morton, that was called Assholes from Outer Space. And um, it was kind of a comedy thing. And there were these people with little antennas and they came down and they were just really awful. And they got jobs at the motor vehicle department and stuff like that. <laughs> and I woke up on, and I thought, you know, well, that's like a Saturday Night Live skit. That's not really a movie. And the next night I had another dream where I was directing and it was a film noir that looked an awful lot like Odd Man Out but it was called Bigfoot in the city and it was set in <laughs> Seattle and there was a Bigfoot being chased through the city and, you know, a lot of wet down cobblestones and things like that. And then the third night I had a dream that was about an African-American man walking down 125th street and he seemed totally lost. And in the dream, the way you realize things without them being played out, I said, Oh, he he's lost because he's not from this planet. Mm-hmm. And I kind of woke up and I, I said, well, there's an idea there. And maybe if I, you know, combine some of the comic elements of the first dream and some of the film noir elements of the second dream with this basic idea, that would be really interesting to have a black man in Harlem who knows less than a white guy from Iowa knows about what's going on there <laughs> in some right. ways. So he's he's got to assimilate very quickly. Um, but you get to see the world through his eye and just question things that were never questioned before. Um, and so uh, that I wrote very quickly. We had just, we had been planning to make mate one for about a million and a half dollars and the money fell through just like the people who were going to give us money were taking a bank loan and bank said no. And they called us up and said no. And I had a meeting with, um, Maggie Renzi and Peggy Reisky, the producers. And I said, well, look, this is this is a big disappointment, but I have another movie in mind. 
And I told them what I knew of the story. Then they said, but it's going to be winter soon. And I said, you start producing and I'll start writing. And I think in about four weeks, we were shooting the movie. Wow. Um, and so I, I remember I remember writing it madly. I was doing rewrites on um, Clan of the Cave Bear at the time. And they flew me out to the West Coast. And I got on the plane at Newark, and they flew in on first class. This is how how long ago this is. Uh, they they flew a writer first class anywhere. <laughs> that that was uh, rare for the for the time. Yeah, yeah, it was rare <laughs> even then. And um, the stewardess who checked me in said, "Well, you you won the you won the prize." And I said, "What's the prize?" And said, "You'll see." So I sat down as the very front row, like the the bathroom is behind us. It's so far forward, and Paul Newman is sitting next to me. Oh, wow. And uh, so I'm writing away, writing away, because I've got a nice six-hour flight to get some of my own work done. And at some point, somebody recognized me who I'd had a meeting with who thought I knew Paul Newman. And he came up and said, hey, how you doing? You're trying to write a screenplay in a you know single flight. And I said, well, that's that's the idea. And I don't know Paul Newman. So he he walked away pissed off, I'm sure, thinking, why didn't he introduce me to Paul Newman? <laughs> and Paul Newman said, I'm so relieved. I kept seeing you write brother, brother, brother. And I thought you were a religious fanatic. <laughs> you're going to turn on me. So I wrote it very quickly. Um, and we it was only a four-week shoot. And we, we put a, a crew together very quickly. Uh, we were trying to get uh, African-Americans as heads of departments. Um, and uh, the great thing was, as as new in the business as we were um when we saw ernest dickerson in ernest dickerson's reel which included spike lee's first kind of student movie he was the best cinematographer we saw besides being african-american so that was an easy hire um so and, so the cinematographer is the one who went on to to do uh, uh um, do the right thing and spikes movies yeah and he's a director now ernest has shot a lot of uh, i i didn't even realize that and that's amazing yeah. and and and, it, and the film had echoes of uh do the right thing and other spike lee films in that sort of gritty early 80s uh, yeah and and ernest ernest um it was the First movie he shot in 35 millimeter, uh, which didn't really make that much of a difference. And, you know, he, he, we really talked a lot about the color palette. And uh, he and Spike had gone to NYU film school together, as did Frank Prinzi, who was a camera assistant on it. Um, so they'd kind of gone through making student films together and, and, and all that. And he had been a still photographer earlier as a career, uh, not on movies, but just, you know, taking stills. Um, and just new movies, you know, was a big science fiction fan. Um, so really a good collaborator in that way. Had you crossed paths with Spike at this point or any time? Uh, you know, I think we interviewed him to be the, the first AD and felt like, well, this guy's way too experienced. He's not going to be happy as a first AD. <laughs> um, uh, the, the guy I did work with, Marco Williams became a, a really kind of distinguished, um, documentary maker after he, he, he you know made the two jaspers and where are our fathers and a couple of really good documentaries um but uh that was the only time that i met him and then was you know i i, I was like sure he's a good you know because i had seen joe's bedsty barbershop uh his student movie which is maybe 15 minutes long something like, and it's a real movie it's very good and you just knew this guy's gonna have a career wow um now is it true that you got a MacArthur Genius grant and that you used that money to fund the film? Not to fund the film, but to... I got it right about um, uh, when we were ready to go into editing uh, the movie. And so I didn't... I, you know, in order to rent the machine and all that kind of stuff and go into the sound mix for Brother, I thought I was going to have to wait and take another writing job and wait until I got paid for that to afford the writing, you know, because it was a self-financed movie, I didn't have to have completion money. I just had to start it with enough money to get it in the can, as they used to say back when they came in cans. Um, and so I had finished it and it was like, okay, I got to look for a job now. And then I got this award. And it, in, in those days, it, they, they dealt it out over five years and it was based on your age. 
And so I was 30 something. And so I got something like $34,000 a year tax free for five years. Hmm. Now they give it in a lump sum, but you know, back then that's how they did it. So I got $34,000, which, you know, on, on, on a movie that was only costing, I think something like $300,000 was good enough to get us through post without me having to take another job. I got to ask, uh, you know, what does winning a genius grant uh, do for your ego? <laughs> it must feel well, good. It, it was a total surprise. I had never heard of it. You, you, you don't apply for it. You know, they, they check you out and they tell people who they check you out um, with not to tell you because most people don't get it. Um, so it was, it was great to get, you know, it was um, the, my favorite story was a year later, um, Maggie and I went to Madagascar. You know, just on a trip, um, we were in the neighborhood in Africa, and we just, let's go to Madagascar. Nobody goes to Madagascar. And we were literally crossing a rope bridge over a chasm. Okay. And, so, and this white woman starts coming across us with another person. And we had read this article where a woman who had gone there, who was not a, a, a professor of anything, she was just a lay person who got interested in primates. She had discovered a new primate. And, and was studying lemurs and all the, the you know, prosimians on Madagascar. We thought, that must be her. And we met in the middle of the bridge and said, did you just win a MacArthur Award? And she said, yeah, what is it? Do you know anything about it? And I said, well, I won. Yeah, let's sit and talk. And so I was able to tell her how lucky she had just gotten. A little uh, uh, genius convention. <laughs> yeah, but it only lasts five years, so I am, I'm an ex-genius. <laughs> um, so... I mean, it sounds like it came together in a whirlwind, but um, mm -hmm. let's just uh, slow down a bit and um, talk a bit about, uh, first of all, what were you trying to achieve with it? I mean, this is uh, unusual. You had a dream uh, about African-American men walking around uh, seeming out of place in Harlem. And uh, from there, did you conceive of a, of a socially, uh, uh, you know, invested and enlightened film? Because that's really yeah, what it is. Yeah, you know, I, I, I had spent some time in Harlem. I'd spent some time in other black neighborhoods in, in, in different places I lived. Um, and some of what I wanted to talk about was waste and, and waste of human potential. And, you know, and race is a big part of that. Um, you know, the the most famous stories in our, you know, kind of national law are about people like Jackie Robinson and, and the people who came before them who didn't get to play in the major leagues. But, you know, that's just the athletes who didn't get a fair chance. You know, you think of all the educators and doctors and scientists and everyone who just didn't get the, the education or if they did, then it, there was a ceiling because they were black. They weren't considered, you know, worthy of the next step. Um, and here's a guy who has all these talents that are extra human talents, and he kind of has to hide them. Um, and when he gets here, he, as I said, he, you know, literally at one point in the movie, he takes his eyeball out, leaves it, and puts it back in and sees what it saw while he was elsewhere. Um, I wanted to see the world through somebody's eyes who would be treated like he should be there, but he knows nothing about it. So when you see things through his eyes, you really say, oh, yeah, this is pretty gnarly, you know? Mm -hmm. um, how come everybody is afraid of the police up here? You know, how, how come, you know, the, the there's needles with drugs still in them on the ground in the playground, you know? How come this is going on? Um, you know, one of the first things that happens um, in, the, in the first reel is, he, you know, he looks in a window and there's a crucifix. And and there's a guy nailed to the cross. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, this is a tough planet. <laughs> you know, and then he turns and he sees a black kid getting, who was actually John Carlo Esposito in one of his first, you know, uh, non-speaking roles in the distance, um, getting thrown up against a car and and frisked by the cops. And he's just realizing, oh God, I got to watch out here. You know, there's serious consequences. I don't even know what you can do. It's wrong, but I know I'm a trespasser here. And I don't know the rules, so I better watch it. And then the next thing, he sees a cop, and he just runs automatically. Um, so, yeah, I, I wanted that eye. And then also just Harlem, like Hollywood, it's a real place, and it's also something iconic in people's imagination. Um, and just like if you go to Hollywood, it's very different than what people imagine it is. You go to Harlem, it's very different what people imagine it is. 
Uh, an interesting thing that happened with us was that because we had a, a, a lot of African-American crew members, a bunch of them had been told by their parents, don't go up to Harlem, it's too rough there. And they ended up getting apartments up there. Because, <laughs> you know, once you knew the place, you know, oh, well, here's like anywhere in New York City, this is the places you hang out, and this is the places you avoid. Right. And now, of course, it's one of the most desirable areas in manhattan yeah, yeah and i was i was struck by how it still had there there were neighborhoods and and traditions there that were very southern because i'd spent a lot of time in the south you know because of that kind of pipeline of people coming up from the south so um you know, I know you work with a kind of repertory or you return to the same actors again and again, and your lead, uh, Joe Morton, is is one of those. Was this the first film you guys worked on together? Yeah, I, I knew of Joe when he came in to, to read for it. Um, I, and what I knew of him is, oh, he's that guy who does Shakespeare with an incredible voice. And of course, we're reading somebody for a part that has no lines. I know. Talk about uh, ironic. <laughs> the actors were coming in and they, we were just talking to them. And, and Joe talked about, well, I kind of understand this kind of fish out of water thing. You know, I was a military kid and, you know, there I was in Okinawa. And there I was in Germany. And then when I came back, you know, there I was in Harlem and I was just as exotic, you know, having come from these foreign countries there as I was when I went to Okinawa. Um, and I just got the feeling, you know, this guy's just, a, he's a good actor. He gets the, he gets the part. It's going to be tough, you know, and I think he can handle it. And, um, and a lot, what I said to Joe is, look, I, I've got four weeks to shoot this, um, on location. We're going to be running and gunning. Um, you have to mentally and physically, um, assimilate during this. So the, the guy who's first there doesn't know what's going on. By the end of the, the movie, he can pass. Um, I'm not going to be able to tell you where you are all the time. We're going to shoot way out of sequence. And so you're going to have to keep track of that. And we'll just talk before the scene about kind of where you are in that spectrum. But you're going to have to do a lot of the work here. And, and, and he was just a great collaborator, you know, in that way um of you know kind of keeping track of things i noticed that um he he stayed away from the other actors before the scene started because i don't do kind of acting rehearsal um and what happened with them is what happens very often if somebody doesn't speak your language or uh they have a hearing problem people started to talk a little louder to him and be you know and that would last for a, a take and a half or two takes and then they would get used to it and, oh, that's just Joe. And then they would relax it a little. And I, so an awful lot of what you see in the movie is the first take. <laughs> Where he truly is alien to, to his fellow yeah. actors. Yeah. Did it, did you ever consider giving him lines or did you know from, from day one that no, this no, was going to be a mute? The character to, be, to, to be mute because that it, it also brings in the, um, the idea that people have to work to communicate with him. And he, he has to understand a bunch of languages in it. So, you know, in the opening scene, you you hear some Haitian French, uh, you hear some Puerto Rican Spanish and this and that. And there's, you know, but I said to Joe, if you can look somebody in the eye and they're talking about something that has some kind of emotional content for them, you can kind of understand what's going on. The one place that's not going to work is when Fisher Stevens comes onto the train and does this card trick with them. Amazing. Those scene. are just words, and there's there, there's no real people behind it, and so he's just what what's he doing? You know, what are these pictures of things on these little cards? You know, and and he walks away kind of stunned by that. <laughs> Let's just talk about that scene. I did not remember it. So first of all, this is a very young Fisher Stevens. I mean, yeah. he looks like you pulled him out of high school or something. And well, Fisher Fisher had been in um, he had been in Baby It's You, which I had made. Okay. And, um, uh, you know, survive. You know, a little bit of his stuff got cut, but he was still in it. And um, one of the things that Margie Simkin, the casting director, told me is that when she brought him in, he was a very new actor. And she said, you know, okay, well, I don't have anything for the reasons. Well, let me show you a card trick. And he did that card. So, so basically, I knew that Fisher could do this card trick. Okay. So in the screenplay, it just says 
it's, it's not written out. It's just he, he does, does a card trick. <laughs> and then Fisher did it on the day. We did it, and um, it was it was very expensive and almost unheard of to actually shoot in the subways of New York then. So we were there was a subway museum in Brooklyn which had a car, and if you rock the car and you run some strip lights by it and have the people go like this, it looks like it's moving, and then you add the sound of it later. And um, at at one at the end of the scene. Um, the doors open and the the conductor says, you know, 96th Street, 125th Street next. And what I said to the extras is when that happens, um, you know, all the white people get off. And one uh, Japanese guy raised his hand and said, what do I do? (laughs) Well, that's the story of your life, right? I I think you'll get off too. (laughs) Um, yeah, that was uh, so great. I mean, it's a great trick, actually. I wasn't sure if it, he was really doing it or if it was faked, but um, yeah, yeah. I think we did two takes, and they were just as you know. And and Fisher's so good with that stuff. Um, and uh, I tried to cast him in another movie, and and he got a a much like a lead in a in a in a movie, and I was going to have him for a small part. And he's the only actor who didn't have his agent call me. He called me personally, which I really appreciate. Um, he's somebody <laughs> I run it. You know, he's become a producer and director, right. and stuff like that. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChumpaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Now, a lot of the scenes take place in this bar in Harlem. Mm-hmm. Um, with a great uh, cast of uh, uh, African American character actors, and mm-hmm. um, uh, definitely again gave me that uh, sense of the uh, the Spike Lee sort of uh, uh, camaraderie and comedy that that, that came mm-hmm. later in other films. But um, this was before those, and um, I wonder if you could talk a bit about how you cast uh, those guys. Yeah, I had worked with. Uh, Steve James, who plays the bartender and uh, owner of it, Odell, um, he had been in a play of mine uh, called Turnbuckle that uh, was was kind of, um, it was about a guy whose marriage is breaking up and he's, you know, he's kind of falling on hard times, but done as a professional wrestling match. Hmm. So there would be scenes and then the characters would go in the ring and have uh, allegorical fights with each other and there was a lot of wrestling in it which was fun and steve had been in that in one production of it and then we did another production of it and tom wright who plays the social worker who comes in had been in that and um i got to know that they were both stuntmen actors i think at one point they were in um uh fort apache the bronx and they oh, wow. boss, and they actually played gang members throwing glasses and bottles down at the cops that they were playing. So they, they actually got to fight with themselves in a movie. Um, they were in the, the warriors that, 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 um, which is another episode we're doing. It's funny. Your name keeps coming up, uh, throughout the season. We did desperately seeking Susan with Susan Seidelman Uh and you came up in that one. And, um, Uh Uh, you, you, your name, you, you just seem to be the Kevin Bacon of indie cinema. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, we were, we were making movies and and hiring people early in their careers. So they, uh, Tom and, and Steve had both worked at the O'Neill center and, um, fences had had its first reading there as a staged reading. Um, and they said, Oh, you, there's these two guys in this. You got to hire him, Bill Cobbs and Leonard Leonard Jackson. And so that's where I got those two guys. I, I ended up getting to work with Bill Cobbs 
a couple more times. Uh, Leonard was in um, uh, Color Purple. He plays her father in that, um, or, or Danny Glover's father, I think, in that. Um, Ren Woods was in uh, the movie of Hair. She's a wonderful singer. She played Odell's wife. Um, so there were, you know, guys, Daryl Edwards has been in a couple more of my movies um, since then. Um, and just a really funny, fun guy to work with. And we were shooting in a bar in Harlem that we had until six o'clock at night when it opened. Okay. And so basically every day we were really working hard to, to meet our time. Um, and the big fight scene at the end of it, um, we also had to finish by six o'clock and we got to this point where I had like 21 shots planned for the fight, which I worked out with, with, um, Steve James and Tom Wright, cause they were stuntmen and they were in the scene and it, and we were like 12 into it. And I said, okay, we've got to finish this fight in, in three moves. <laughs> and so right. that's when we just said, okay, we're going to skip the middle and we're going to throw some pool balls and get these guys. And then. Tom, you're going to double uh, Joe Morton, and you're going to do this flip uh, with a trampoline. And he was in in the air at about two minutes of six o'clock, and he hit the ground, and we just had our hands on everything and wrapped out so they could <laughs> open the bar. So you you know you weren't too far from the ambiance. Uh, we had a couple guardian angel um, street people who would come for lunch every day, or you know. Uh, there was a shot at night um, when uh, I think it's Reggie Bythewood um, is, is found dead in the parking lot um, and, and the brother shoots himself up with whatever's left in the needle. And he, he comes toward the camera and we did this very woozy 360. Mm-hmm. And it's woozy because we had 300 people at two in the morning <laughs> who had nothing better to do than watch us shoot this movie. And they weren't going anywhere. We didn't want to, you know, kind of push people around in their own neighborhood. So Ernest just said, well, I'll start the 360. And when I come to them, I'll go like this. <laughs> <laughs> and he's, he's stoned. So it'll look like it's part of him, you know, his drug reaction. Uh, but, we, you know, people were, it was fun. It was really fun shooting up there. You know, people got into it, asked what it was about. Um, my, my first AD, Craig Rice, who later became like the road manager for Prince, um, was a wonderful AD, but also he's an African-American man who's telling everybody what to do. And everybody assumed he was the director. So I got (laughs) to just look like the world's laziest PA and sit on a car (laughs) hood somewhere. And he got all the questions. That raises the question, like... did people question your authority or your uh, the authenticity because you were the writer and in charge? Not really. Not you know back then it was it was more truly the only the only um, uh, kind of sad reaction was a couple times people you know when we were doing the men in, in black scenes and we were chasing him we would describe the scene and and say well he's a runaway slave from outer space people would say oh they have it there too. <laughs> you know, and which you totally understand. Um, but I, I think just because the crew was so mixed um, and the cast was almost all African-American, it just looked like, well, this is what belongs in Harlem. Right. So just to a, a quick rundown of what happens in it, uh, an alien lands on Earth uh, he, and he is the only thing that really uh, would set him apart from being a human is that he has uh, six toes, three on each foot yes and and he 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 tears his leg off um below the knee on his landing and it regenerates by the next day uh, <laughs> right we don't usually do that as human beings yeah he has an amazing ability to uh, repair either human tissue that's been damaged or mm-hmm. also electronics just mm-hmm. by putting his hand on it and um it glows was that mm-hmm. like a, a, a practical effect did you have some kind of flashlight yeah, just a little light bulb down down his sleeve you know the, you know i said when the the you know the board on the the spaceship that he lands leds had just hit the market you could get them down on canal street okay it was a very, very new technology and so i said i you know now that people have seen et i want people to know in the first five minutes this is a dollar ninety eight cent version of Star Wars. You know, this, this, this is 
really, really down and dirty. And so we made this very, very simple crash. And, you know, the, um, the, the, the wide shot of the spaceship arcing into the harbor uh, was made with construction paper and a pin. Um, <laughs> wow. And, you, you know, so, you know, really just one after the other, which made this white streak. And then I went into the microphone and that was the sound of it. And then we put a splash on. <laughs> You know, that's, that's how basic it is. Um, so, you know, there's, it was before um, morphing, which was before CGI. So we didn't have any of that kind of stuff. And you go with it, though. I mean, there's something so honest about um, the characters and the dialogue and uh, that you're, you're willing to suspend bel- disbelief and, and uh, just go with the story, which is, I think, you know, a sign of great filmmaking. Yeah, and it's, and it, and it's meant to be, you know... Yeah, he's from outer space, but here he is in Harlem. Right. <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting. I mean, one of my favorite science fiction writers was Philip K. Dick. Um, and I, I guess uh, Blade Runner is the most famous of the movies that was made from this mm-hmm. stuff. And his whole thing was, yes, technology is going to be incredible in the future, but we're still messed up people. There's <laughs> yeah. still going to be garbage, and there's still going to be bad politics, and there's still going to be, you know, people with mental problems, and you know, which he had himself. Um, and I just felt like, yeah, well, science fiction. You know, Kurt Vonnegut always said science fiction is the most philosophical genre because it's always what if, what if, what if. Well, what if somebody from outer space who doesn't know where any of his own people are crash landed in Harlem? Well, a he'd be lucky because there's places where you don't want to crash land if you're a black man. (laughs) And B, he'd have to figure out quickly if he wasn't going to be just kind of poked and prodded as some kind of creature from, you know, outer space, how to assimilate and how to pass. Um, You know, just hearing that Philip K. Dick quote, and, uh, you know, I I just find that the, the whole thing is very prescient. The film is very prescient. You know, I mean, look at 2022 and where we are with technology mm-hmm. and the state mm-hmm. of things uh, and that sort of, you know, friction. Um, and there was a lot in the film that I feel like predicted a lot. First of all, the main thing he he fixes is video games, mm-hmm. which were still uh, consoles at the time um, yeah. and very fun to watch on screen, you know, as a yeah. throwback to the 80s. But um, it just I, I feel like that was a, a smart move on your part, like anticipating the direction we were going. And a lot of them were space games. Right. So it kind of tied in with how he got there. Right. You know? I, and I, I noticed you throw in UFO stuff on the TV and on, on tabloids, and there was little UFOs everywhere. And then the other thing is just the, um, you know, the, the, the issues that were coming up, a lot of it about uh, immigration. There's there's mm-hmm. one speech where he's taken in by a kindly woman, and um, she, your character, along with David Strait there, and you play uh, Men in Black, your... your um, basically ice agents for for extraterrestrials right and um and she gives an angry speech about you know this whole thing is a scam you know you just want this piece of paper we would like to ask you some questions if you're looking for bobby i have no idea where he is we have reason to believe that this man has been living with you he comes and goes right now he's gone where does he work here and there he fixes things what do you want with him? Immigration. Immigration. Give me a break. We had a kid overdose right downstairs last night, and you're pestering people about whether they got some piece of paper that says they're illegal? Will he be coming back tonight? You want to know what my opinion is? Just the facts, ma'am. My opinion is that you people just made up this immigration scam just to keep people under your thumb. Is he coming back tonight? What am I, his mother? Wait for him. See if I care. Just don't do it in my kitchen. Ma'am, have you ever looked at his feet? What are you, sick? I just thought, wow, that could have been told, I mean, this week. You know, stuff has yeah, not changed. You know, it, was, it was already happening. It, wasn't, it didn't get as much ink um, as it did before. But, you know, so, so many people in New York City were immigrants even at that time. Sure, uh, yeah. You know, there were uh, an awful lot of Haitian people who had come um it was a time when you, you kind of knew where the hot spot in the world was by driving you know riding in taxis so it was a like like a year where every taxi driver you got was israeli 
you know, and then it might be Greeks, and then it might be, you know, people from Eastern Europe or whatever. Um, there was a, you know, there was a couple of years where it was people from Africa, you know, who were coming in who didn't necessarily speak much English. And you just feel like, well, some of them are going to get to be citizens. Some of them are going to stay under the radar and get to stay, whether they're citizens or not. Um, but that's the story of, you know, certainly my people came here right around the turn of, you know, around 18, 1900. Some of them didn't speak English when they came. And so, and, and I'm always interested in assimilation. You know, what do you give up and what do you get? And, and, and can you break that tie, you know? And the, you know, when the men in black come, it's just like, oh my God, you know, he's doing pretty well here. And then these guys show up. And is he going to be snatched back? And some of that was, you know, I bring it into the film later. You know, there was this period when um, uh, slavery had been abolished in the northern states, but it was still the law of the land that if black people escaped, um, enslaved black people escaped and got to this, you know, slave catchers can come up and claim them. And the courts had to give them up and let them go back. Um, which is why eventually they were going all the way to Canada. And that brings us to the sort of uh, racial elements uh, th- that you very bravely confront head on and um, are are very compellingly done. And it doesn't feel dated at all. It feels very current. And um, uh, there's one scene where you have two... Uh, uh, tourists, uh, white guys from Indiana who get lost in Harlem and they wander mm-hmm. into the bar and, um, and you, it, you make it very funny, but, uh, is, there's that sort of awkward, uh, two solitudes, uh, not quite knowing how to relate to each other. Yeah. I mean, I, and, and they, they, you know, at the end of it, they think they've had this wonderful conversation with this guy, but the audience <laughs> right. realizes he can't talk. So <laughs> right, they, right. They, it's a very one-sided conversation. And they're kind of scared and thrilled to be in Harlem because it is iconic. And they can go home and say, hey, we went to Harlem. It wasn't that bad. You know, we, 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 we left there feeling fine. And, but then the bartender does come, come over and tell them, here's, how you, here's the quickest way to get back into the subway. <laughs> yeah, get uh, out of here. <laughs> you don't want to be hanging around out here. It's 8 o'clock. Jeez, will you look at that? <laughs> this is really something, huh? <laughs> Wander in here off the street. I mean, if, if people would sit down and talk like this more often... Communication. Th- That's what it's all about. Three blocks south, one block east, subway engines. You want the A train downtown. Hmm? Okay, right, thanks. Yeah, and then the one of the guys gets drunk and talks about how he he had admiration for for a black uh, baseball Ernie player. Bass, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's uh, you know, and that's something you know that that's in a lot of our movies, which is sports and music are the first places in in the United States where races met historically. Mm-hmm. You know, and so even in a, you know the segregated days of the Cotton Club white musicians would come and they'd, they'd, they'd hang out in the alleyway smoking marijuana and listen to the black players inside. And then they get together and they jam together somewhere. Right. Um, and they, they almost never appeared on the same stage, but they did play together. Mm-hmm. And the same thing, like my, my grandfather was, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of, you know, semi-pro ball player for, you know, 10 bucks here, 15 bucks there. And he said, oh yeah, we used to play the black teams all the time. You know, so that, you know, but they weren't integrated, but they met, you mm. know, their fans would be in the stands, usually in different sections and stuff mm. like that. And then eventually it's like, if you can play, you can stay. And that, that goes for music as well as sports. And eventually you get these people, you know, all these young white kids who, who grew up idolizing Michael Jordan and wanted to wear his sneakers mm-hmm. or some rap guy, uh, um, you know, and wanted to be a rapper. Um, that's where things start to cross. They don't cross all the way, but they do at least start to cross. And it's one of the reasons we don't have a boring culture. You can say that again. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, for years, I was trying to um, get a, a project about Louis Armstrong off the ground. First with Charles Dutton, who I had worked with. Um, he, he asked me to, to come in and write it for him to direct. And then I went around with it um, with John Singleton. 
and we never got it off off the ground. But um, you know what what a lot of that was about was if it wasn't for Louis Armstrong, we would have had twenty more years of Rudy Valley. He had mm-hmm. that much you know impact on even white singers, you know like Bing Crosby and people like that. Just in oh wow, you could do that with your horn and your voice. We don't have to sing like Rudy Valley anymore. Mm. You know, we can go into another thing, even if it didn't get integrated on sca- stage in most cases. Wow, yeah. I'm surprised they've never made a proper uh, biopic yeah. of Louis yeah. Armstrong. Yeah, we got to get that one underway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, are you listening, Hollywood? But uh, and then there's, but speaking of uh, music, he falls for a, um, a lounge singer, mm-hmm. which is you know, a sort of romantic diversion in the film that was very, works very well. Um, what could you tell me about the, uh, the woman who plays uh, the singer? Yeah, we we read a bunch of people from it for it, and um, Dee Dee Bridgewater came in, who had, who who was you know she was kind of a jazz singer at that time, mm-hmm. um, but she was also looking into acting roles. Um, she's for years done a kind of Billie Holiday night, you know, and and I think she may do Dinah Washington as well, and does a you know talking in between a little bit of acting. And quite a good actress, even though she didn't really follow up doing that. And she needed to be a singer. And I just said, well, this person has got to sing, <laughs> you know. Um, and so we had a couple singers who weren't really actresses, um, but I needed both for that. And so she was just fun. You know, we, we only got to work with her a couple days, um, but really a nice person to work with. Listen, I'm going to sit here for a minute, but don't get any ideas, all right? The man that owns this club has been on my ass since I opened here, and I'm trying to keep him off of it. So if he comes by, you are my gentleman friend from Philadelphia, okay? Well, what's your name, honey? You can't talk? Well, some alibi you're gonna be. You can hear, can't you? Do you like my singing? Oh, well, my voice isn't what it used to be when I was with the girls, but it's got character. There you are, precious. How's my girl tonight? She was great. And, uh, you know, what I love about the film is that he never talks, but he's becomes a kind of mirror for people to open up whatever's yeah. eating away at them. Yeah. And, and because they don't, well, he's not going to tell anybody else what I just said to him. <laughs> no, yeah. I, I used to hitchhike a lot in the late sixties and early seventies. And you, you, within two minutes, once you're in the car, you realize I'm either the entertainment or I'm here to listen. <laughs> and a lot of times you were there to listen to somebody's troubles because you're like the perfect shrink. They're going to let you off and say, hi, have a nice life. You're never going to meet anybody they know. Um, <laughs> there were a lot of Vietnam vets, you know, within three minutes. Well, I've never told anybody this, but, and you'd get this load that they got to unload on you and you, you know, sympathetic as you, you can be, but you're also walking out of their life from them. So they don't feel like any of that's going to come back to them. So somebody who's who's very attentive to you because he had to look you in the eyes to understand what you're saying, but doesn't comment on it, um, is is like a great listener. And everybody likes a great listener if they want to, they've got something to, so in, in a way, yeah, it's people get, show their speed when they're talking to somebody like that. Yeah, and he and he has an openness to him. Uh, there's something, you know. We did another one. We did was after hours, where yeah. your your name came up, and yeah. um, both in Griffin Dunn's character and him, there's a sort of just like sweet, like blank, um, every man quality that reminds me of um, you know some of the silent greats. I mean, in this case, he's literally silent. You know, just these uh, very soulful eyes. Yeah, and, and, you, know, I, you know, I mean, I thought what Griffin did in that was. Um, He's just her, trying to survive the night. Yes. <laughs> and it just gets weirder and weirder and weirder. And he's, he's, he's just trying to get from one place to another, you know. And then these, he keeps getting out. And we have this, this um, night town sequence in, in uh, The Brother from Another Planet. I was actually asked uh, from a local college to come and talk to a Dante class about that sequence because... You know, I you know the guy who takes him around on the tour is called Virgil, and and there are a lot of parallels between you know Virgil uh, guiding the guy in, in, in Dante's Inferno. Um, that was actually that sequence was inspired for me by a section of Ralph Allison's Invisible Man, um, where he puts on these 
uh, dark glasses, and everybody starts confusing him for a guy named Reinhardt, who's this <laughs> Harlem character. And then he realized, oh, Reinhardt's a preacher. He's got two or three mistresses. He's a pimp. He's this and that. And it's like, all of a sudden, I can see a whole Harlem that I didn't see before because I've got these things on. Wow. And so I wanted, you know, this is a guy and, and he thinks he knows what's going on. And then he runs into this Rasta, who was a real Rasta, um, Sidney Sheriff. And, uh, and he takes a couple hits of marijuana. And then he says, let me show you what goes on at night. And it's a very different story. Welcome to Babylon, brother. You got that far away look in your eye. Come out here with tense and realizing the truth, I think. There's many a pearling out there for your brother. Don't want to lose the way. Let Virgil guide you, man. I'm in the farm and the ways of the night. Yeah, it's a, it's a very cool sequence. Um, that's sort of after he he does the the drugs that he finds on the street, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it kind of takes a dark turn. The film it's a little bit more lighthearted, and then he sees a a guy who ODs, a young guy, and with yeah. the needle still in his arm, and uh, he abstains from alcohol for the whole film. But suddenly, you're shocked to see that he just samples the whatever that was. He wants to know what's going. He wants to know what killed that kid. Mm-hmm. You know, and and because he knows he's not human. <laughs> You know, and he can regenerate things. He feels like, well, I'll, I'll I'll just take a little of this and see what the story is. Why would mm-hmm. why would you put something in your arm that could kill you? And then he find he finds this this uh, Rasta who takes him on this uh, uh, night uh, odyssey. It's it's really cool. Yeah, I didn't want the movie to be about drugs because there's so much more that happens in Harlem than that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, you you know, at that point, this is just pre crack. So it was uh, Harlem got much rougher during crack, like every neighborhood that got hit by crack. And mm-hmm. a lot of people had very short lifespans in crack because it kills you quickly. Um, but um, there was still heroin and, and cocaine were problems there. And, um, you know, I just couldn't ignore them. You know, I always feel like if you go through the neighborhood, it, you got to look at everything that's there. And, and that was something that was there. And so he kind of goes on this odyssey, and he, um, you know, he has uh, he meets that woman, and he he has all these adventures, let's say. And then at the very end, he's being chased by you, and again, David Strait Theron, who of course mm-hmm. goes on to great um, heights with his career. It was cool to see young Strait Theron running around, being menacing with you. And um, and then uh, it ends. Spoiler alert! Um, I think people from his home planet, similar to him, um, uh, come down. And then there's a uh, uh, the opening, the the ending is is up for interpretation. So he he points upwards, thinking he's going to return, mm-hmm. and they point downwards, and then we see him on so the A train. Basically, ET go home. Say no, we're here. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Make the best of it. And then the last thing you see is he's on the A train. You know, <laughs> it's it's you know uh, Duke Ellington's song, and and the last image is him with. You know, uh, Harlem plays the best basketball or something and graffiti over one of the high schools. Right. So he's here, you know, and there are some other people like here, him here. But when you see them, they're domestic workers, they're cleaners, they're they're getting immigrant jobs um, and hiding who they are. But at least there's some community here. Um, uh, I'm from Schenectady, New York. Schenectady, New York has a huge um community of people from um from guinea you know from um, i mean uh, guiana a guianese community because like two people came and got jobs and then they wrote back home and then pretty soon it's one of the biggest guianese communities outside of guiana in the world um and that's you know that that happened with a lot of um, a lot of ethnicities in new york city and so now there's this alien one. Uh, there have been a couple attempts to make it into a TV show, ne- neither of which got off the ground. And and what I always wanted to do with it is to 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 make it about immigration, you know, and that eventually, in the first iteration, um, uh, he was going to be a, a bicycle messenger. If you remember, speaking of Kevin Bacon, when there were a million <laughs> messengers, because that would get him all over the city, and you didn't have to talk; you just handed people messages and 
you know, right. got stuff back from him. And then the second iteration, um, he was going to stay in Harlem, but kind of be sent out on these jobs with the Chinese people and the, all the other people who are coming in, you know, people from the Dominican Republic, whatever, because he can kind of understand every language. He can kind of communicate with the people he's working with who are just as lost as he is. Uh, and then I also was going to have him learn uh, the North American language of the deaf. And so he was going to be able to eventually sign to some people and have that community as somebody he could really talk to. Um, somebody could still do a good job of it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, I, I think the nice thing about it is that um, it, it played enough that a lot of people got to go to Harlem who never would go there and see stuff that wasn't just about, you know, drug wars. Yeah, I mean, I think it, I remember it very clearly. I remember my older sister telling me about the three toes and me having mm -hmm. to, to see what it was all about. And um, I, I think it, it made a big impact and it, it uh, it's, uh, I can, I think a cult film, we could call it that. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it still gets, it, it still gets seen. And, you know, every once in a while, like, you know, uh, like a, um, a basketball player will get called the brother from another planet or <laughs> the mother from another planet or something like that. So people who haven't even seen the movie know the phrase. Yeah, it definitely has, has a ring to it. And uh, if you wouldn't mind telling me what you're up to lately, I'm just curious what, what's going on. Let's see. The last thing that I wrote that got made was a Mexican movie called Sonora that came mm -hmm. out last year that I actually won an Ariel for, which is their Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Um, and uh, I have a book, another novel coming out in February called Jamie McGillivray, which is like a big historical novel that starts at the Battle of Culloden and ends at the Battle of Quebec. Um, and I'm, I'm currently working on another novel. And then I was, um, I have a meeting later today with some of the producers. I was working with Doug Trumbull when he died on mm. a movie that would have been kind of an extension of his ideas that were in Silent Running. Um, and, and, you know, with Doug's kind of technical expertise would have been a movie that looked like a $200 million movie made for maybe $60 million. Uh, <laughs> Okay. And uh, after Doug died, uh, the producer decided to, to, to keep working on that. Like everybody else, I think they're thinking of making it into a, a series rather than a feature. It's very hard to get features off the ground if they're not from a, you know, like a, a Marvel kind of factory, you know, where, where the characters are already established. Um, I have the usual two or three movies that I've written that I'd like to be able to get financed and and made but um truly this is a really hard time for independent movies to get financed and seen um because it uh, it's still kind of up in the air how many of those movie theaters are going to stay open um for people to see them and um if your stuff doesn't um fit the um algorithms of the streamers you're just left out you know, it's just, well, you know, that's, that just, that, that scans too old for the audience we're going after. Um, and, and one of the things you're always dealing with, with them is they're not necessarily looking for something that's going to please the people who have already signed up or of a certain age. They're mm -hmm. looking for new people who mm -hmm. are mostly going to be very young. Um, so, so, you know, the usual thing that um, everybody who's scuffling to make movies do, which is, um, you know, every once in a while I get a bread job writing something, uh, or rewriting something for people. Um, I have a couple movies that I'd like to get financed and, and direct. And then this thing with Doug Trumbull, who knows what will happen with it, but it's, it was really fun working with him. Well, I'm glad to hear you're still, you know, very active and, you know, it's, you're obviously a huge talent and, uh, a god of indie cinema, so uh, we we all appreciate your your contributions, and uh, and it's thrilling to uh, to just spend some time with you. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Seth.
Thank you, John Sales, giant of American independent film. That was a thrill to meet you and get to talk to you um, about this movie that that really, uh, you know, I hadn't seen it since the 80s. <laughs> and I watched it and, um, you know, it hits you in a different way as an adult, but it really works. It's wonderful. So if you've never seen The Brother from Another Planet, uh, I, of course, encourage you to watch it. Uh, as I do all the films we cover on uh, It Happened in Hollywood. And uh, I don't know how this happened, but next week is our final episode. It flew by. Uh, And this is a really special episode. We have Julian Fellows, who is probably now best known as the writer, creator, big boss on uh, the Downton Abbey series and the films, the two films that came out of that. And now he's doing The Gilded Age for HBO, a huge budget historic uh, drama. But he got his start with this film, Gosford Park. It was one of Robert Altman's last films and one of his highest earning films. It's kind of Downton Abbey-esque, but it's set in the 30s, so a little bit later. And uh, it also has an Agatha Christie angle because there's a murder. It's a wonderful, wonderful film. It won him an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay which he was quite tickled about and told great stories. So um, please come back next week for our season three finale. It's Gosford Park. It's on all the streamers. And until then, we'll see you in Hollywood. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.